Living on Earth with a Divine Nature. This is part 14. Working our way verse by verse through 2 Peter. Why our world rejects the message of the second coming. Why our world rejects the message of the second coming. Starting chapter 3 now. And we'll go through the first seven verses. The Apostle Peter says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So when he says, I'm going to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder, he's telling me what my main spiritual problem is. What's my main spiritual problem? Well, forgetfulness. Not ignorance, that's not, that's not the same thing. Not ignorance, forgetfulness. That you should, here it is again, remember the predictions of the holy prophets, the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. There's a, it's subtle, there's a doctrine of scripture here. The holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. So when you read Peter, Paul, James, John, when you're reading them, Peter is saying that's, it's, it's hearing Jesus. Jesus continues to speak through the rest of the New Testament. It all has that weight, that authority to it. So here's what they were reminding of. First of all, that scoffers will come in the last days following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now Peter picks up and says, they, that's these false teachers, they, and this word interests me, they deliberately overlook. So this isn't, this isn't overlooking something the way I overlook where I put my keys and I can't find them. That's accidentally overlooking it. They, they, they deliberately overlook the fact that the heavens exist. What is it that they are, this fact, what is it that they overlook on purpose? That the heavens existed long ago, okay, creation, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, these is this idea of water. He said it twice. The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So the fact that they deliberately overlook is this idea of God judging. Verse 7, by the same word, here's what else they deliberately overlook. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist, it's the one you live, right here, the one you, the earth you live on. Look what he says, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and, and the destruction of, of the ungodly. They overlooked this on purpose. Well, hard to blame them. Let's pray. We recognize that something historic is happening right now. 
because not one of us, here we are in this particular Sunday, and not one of us has ever been here before. Every second from here on in is brand new. I pray, Lord Jesus, that at the end of this day, when we crawl into bed and put our heads on our pillows, we will all say, my, the Lord touched my life today. My, I'm a different person now. My, I, I love Jesus more than ever before. Because if that doesn't happen, surely, surely we've missed something. And so, Holy Spirit, come into this, into this brand new moment. And it's at this brand new moment that we freshly give our hearts to you, our minds to you. You worked a new creation when we were saved. Keep working that in our hearts and in our lives from this moment on. In Jesus' name. And the church said, let's take a minute to look back over the first two chapters that we've been studying and we'll maybe get a better handle on where we are right now. Chapter 1 is, is uh, a wonderful, expanded statement rehearsing the solid foundation under the Christian faith. Peter holds up the promises, exceedingly precious promises that he says, by them we're partakers of a new nature. So these promises in God's word, they have this incredible power to purge the life of what Peter calls destructive desires. So the admonition there is to connect your study of the scriptures to the habits that dominate your life. And those promises have the certainty and the authority and the power of God behind them. So the words of scripture, Peter says in that first chapter, they're not just the musings and the speculations and the philosophies of men and women. They aren't just the opinion of humanity. These are the words of God. 121. He said people spoke carried along by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God. Chapter 2, naturally, logically, if there's the preciousness of the truth of God's word in chapter 1, Peter knows that's not the last teaching people will ever hear. And so chapter 2 warns of the encroachment of false teachers and leaders. He says it'll be within the church as time goes by, and he says it'll be an escalating problem. Not a static one, but an escalating problem as we move into the last days, deeper into the last days. There'll be a move away from holiness in the church. Holiness will be replaced by personal fulfillment. I don't mean leaders will cease to call people to holiness. I mean holiness will be defined more in terms of what fulfills my, myself rather than what is pleasing to God even if it's countercultural. Or, or maybe more subtly, people will talk about those things like they're the same. God's ultimate desire is my immediate personal fulfillment. And people will, will actually begin to mock any kind of self-restraint. Self-expression will be praised. 
not self-denial. Self-denial is not good for you. People will pursue their own instincts rather than the lordship of Jesus. We will be encouraged. See if this rings true. We'll be encouraged more and more not to judge or condemn anti-scriptural patterns of behavior. We'll be increasingly encouraged to embrace. Tolerance equals godliness. So Peter says, in the last days, increasingly, even in the church, people will, people will hesitate or refuse to hear truth from God's word. And then he says it'll be like, like the prophet Balaam refused to hear God speak and God had to speak through the donkey, remember? We looked at that. And who could forget Peter's rather graphic picture of people walking back into old sins the way a dog returns to its own vomit. Remember that? And so the glorious gospel gets praised in chapter 1. The dangers of corruption and heresy and apostasy and self-centeredness, those are flagged in chapter 2. Where does Peter go from here? How does he give the church something to hold on to? And here's what Peter does. There's, there's the glory of the truth. There's the corruption that comes in the last days. Peter, help us. And what he talks about in chapter 3 primarily is, he talks about the second coming. In fact, in fact, if you take the time to look closely, just check it out, you'll see that almost, there are some exceptions, but almost every time the New Testament has a passage really pressing for holy living, it will almost always talk about the second coming at the same time. I find that fascinating. Let me just give you a couple of for instances. I don't want to wear you out. John, the Apostle John, and now little children abide in him. So there's the plea. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. When the Apostle Paul starts talking about worldliness and holiness and following Christ and the life of the Spirit. He winds up with these words in chapter 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So there you've got this list, right? Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Do this, do this, do this. Oh, don't do this, don't do this, and don't do that. How does he wrap up this exhortation? Now may the God of peace sanctify you and com- sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in just exactly the same way, Peter starts to bring his second letter. He calls it his second letter to the close. Talking about the second coming of Jesus. So the idea here is, Christians become, uh, if not gullible, 
at least careless, culturally compromised when the doctrine of the second coming isn't constantly considered. So, so the muscles of holiness are strengthened by the persistent orienting of our ultimate destiny. Our lives will come to love the direction that they are aimed at. Point number one. Peter reminds these churches that the truth of the second coming has its roots in three sources. The Old Testament, the words of Jesus Christ, and the teaching of the apostles. I get that in chapter 3, our text, verses 1 and 2. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And in both of them, I'm stirring you up, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So in just a few verses, Peter will warn these churches that uh, there will be all sorts of people in the church itself who will actually start to mock and scoff at this truth. You wouldn't think that's possible. And as the spiritual climate of much of the church starts to drop, the second coming of Jesus will... It'll be one of those truths that, that, while not denied, perhaps, won't hold much currency, much value. This has always been the case. We're going to look at why this is so. But right now, Peter goes back to something he's already dealt with in the first chapter of this letter. He says, chapter 1, 19 to 21, he says, we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will, you will do well to pay attention. You will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, what do you need to know first of all? We need a foundation. Here's the first thing. That no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. First of all, Peter says, this is the foundational issue. You have to be, you have to be right here. You don't have to be right on everything. Here you have to be right. The issue is pretty simple. Every Christian must decide to whom he or she will listen. What what is your Christian life based on? Is your life based on what your friends believe? Is it based on the stuff you've had handed down to you by your parents but have maybe never thought through actually for yourself? Do you make your decisions, and this is what Peter's talking about specifically, do you base your decisions on which appetite is strongest at the moment? Which appetite pulls the most? Affluence? Acceptance? Popularity? Ambition? 
success, power, pleasure, leisure? Are you afraid to hold on to convictions that the crowd around you doesn't admire? Think about that. Do your formally fixed life convictions morph when they don't fit in with your peers? Mark Twain, he was an atheist, but he was a a brilliant, sharp man. He writes, I have a book of quotes of his, and he talks about his convictions with fellow authors, and he said to them, after talking about his beliefs, he said, those are my convictions. But if you don't like them, I have others. A lot of people live life like that. I have my convictions, but I do have others. Peter says we have to settle in our minds where we get our convictional orientation. Is our foundation the revelation of God or is it something else? And what Peter says at the, this point is, is pretty significant. He says, I want to call you back to something you've already learned. 3.1, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So he says, Don Horbin, your mind needs stirring up on the subject of the second coming. It's not that I don't believe in it. Unconsidered truth quickly marginalizes. It it moves to the lazy fringes of our thinking. Its power to secure our minds and to drive our wills, that power starts to cool. John Calvin says that without fresh exhortation, quote, the minds of the godly become dim, as it were, and attract rust. That's a great quote. When he says that, he doesn't mean that I cease to believe in the second coming. He doesn't mean I don't know about the second coming. He he means that I can live pretty large slices of my daily life without thinking about the second coming. I start to make decisions without considering it. I can make decisions without thinking. In John's words, I can make a lot of decisions without thinking about whether or not I will be ashamed of those decisions when I stand before the Lord. How many many poor choice would would be eliminated from our lives if every time we were forced to consider whether or not that particular choice will be something I'm somewhat ashamed of when I stand before Jesus? Wouldn't we live our lives differently, at least at moments? Temper, honesty, Entertainment, revenge, the things we justify. Peter means I will start to lack perseverance. I will start to lack patience as I serve Jesus because I'll get too focused on reward and recognition here. Does that happen in the church? Recognition here and now rather than looking and longing and preparing for the second coming. 
Peter means I can be too quickly discouraged by the situations and trials that I face in daily living because I forget, I forget what Paul said. Look at these words. All related so we do not lose heart. Though our outward nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. That's a great phrase. Right there, he doesn't tell us how that happens. He just says it's something that's taking place. He's going to tell us how it happens. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are are eternal. This probably presents a bigger problem for the church today than, than ever before. There's, there's never been a day where just the technology, the cyber technology, there are so many ways to focus on the here and now that never existed in my grandfather's day. And it's quick. I used the illustration before. Think of, think of the quickness with which everything that's going on here and now, everything that could interest me here and now, I have access to instantly. My, even my, my father, go back to my grandfather. If he was upset with something and he, would, he could get up and say, I'm going to fire off a letter about that. And then you'd look for paper a pen, you'd write it all out, your anger, your complaint. There's an envelope. I need an envelope. You get an envelope, you put the letter in the envelope, you address the envelope, you don't have any stamps. You got to go buy a stamp, you get the stamp, you lick the stamp, you put it on the envelope, then you got to take it to the mailbox. By the time you do that, your temper's cooled off and you don't have to send the letter. But everything is so instant. The world is, is at our fingertips in seconds. Everything focuses on the here and now. The news focuses on the here and now. Most of the internet focuses on the here and now. The things your boss wants you to do, they focus on the here and now. Every bill you have to pay focuses on the here and now. Try missing one. And, and yet, as Christians, we're, we're, this, we're this called out people. We're this people whose citizenship is in heaven. We're specifically told to set our affections not on things on the earth, but on things that are above. Paul commands that. And we will never do that until everything we do, you have to live in this world, but everything has to have the hope of the second coming stamped on it. I got to move on. Two, point number two. Christians need to be alerted to the fact that there will arise an increasing number of people who will actually mock the revelation of God about the second coming. I get that in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come. Know that right off the bat. 
Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. I guess that's what they would come with. Following, following their own sinful desires. So there's a, a root to the scoffing. They will say, where? Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This, this kind of follows on the heels of the first point. If, if we need, we need to keep the hope of the second coming alive in our hearts. Peter now says that hope is not going to go unchallenged. Don't think it will. If you and I are going to keep this hope in our hearts, we will face increasing cultural opposition. And here's why. Here's why keeping your faith aimed at the second coming of Jesus Christ won't be an easy thing. The reason is simple. People have been waiting for Jesus to come for such a long time. That's the problem. It just doesn't look like, it just doesn't look like he's ever going to come back. Look at that fourth verse. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing changes. It's always the same. Where is the promise of his coming? Where is it? I hear you talking about the second coming. I see you people singing about the second coming, though not as much as we used to. But where is it? Where is it? Nothing changes. Things are just the way they've always been. People have been yammering about the second coming for 2,000 years, but he hasn't come. He's not coming. Then, in just a couple of words, Peter slips in the reason for their mocking. It's in that third verse. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So, so the mocking, the scoffing, it isn't, it isn't an unbiased scoffing. They have reason to confront the doctrine of the second coming. And the judgment of the Lord, they want more than anything else to continue undisturbed in their own lives. There's something very frightening in those words. We should all give them considerable weight in our thinking this morning. Because, because they point out how beliefs get formed and unformed in our minds. And they tell me it's not just an intellectual process. Convictions are not always the result of our best thinking. Sin, self-centeredness, inward desires, wicked desires, they, they corrupt the ability to apprehend and digest truth. What these mockers lose is their ability to hear the truth with a Sincere mind, 3-1, a sincere mind. So, so the inward love for truth, truth about the new creation, truth about the second coming, 
truth about the judgment of the world with the flood and the future judgment to come. That's what Peter's talking about in context. They can't receive that with a sincere mind. They have, they have what the Bible calls a darkened understanding. This, they don't have a slide for this. I just put it in this morning. But if you want to look it up. A darkened understanding. Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. Tap it into your phone or your iPad or whatever you have there. Paul writes and he says, Now now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles. Here he means not just Gentiles as opposed to Jews. He means pagans. Must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Look what he says, 18. They are darkened in their understanding there there it is alienated from the life of god because of the ignorance that is in them why are they ignorant due to their hardness of heart they've become callous have given themselves up to sensuality that's not sexuality sensuality is what peter's talking about the desires that they have they want to live out those desires from the inside out And so they have a darkened understanding because of that. That process doesn't happen in an instant. It always happens over time. it's It's the cumulative impact of cherished self centeredness. And that's why that's why the Bible warns so clearly about the danger of the impact of that mockers can have on a sincere Christian mind. You you, you see this in a passage. We read this today. Didn't we read Psalm 1 today? I'm not out of my mind, am I? Blessed. That's what we want, right? This is what I want for my life. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, And here it is, sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And so you notice the order in those verses. Before before you can properly meditate on the word with fruitfulness, you, you must have already committed yourself to distancing yourself from mockers. You can't play both ends of the stick. You must have a sincere mind before you can meditate on the word with fruitfulness. Point number three. We're almost done. There is clear, observable evidence of the truth of the doctrine of the second coming and divine judgment on all sin. I get that in verses five through seven of our text. So that works through all seven verses now. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God God just spoke remember that's the power of the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished look by that same word Remember it there, the power power of that word? By that same word, 
the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So, so Peter says there are, there are these three truths that must never be forgotten. And he says there are people who deliberately overlook these truths. So, so that means there's a, a cost to pondering these things, uh, an impact on our present decision-making. And Peter wants to stir up these, these sincere believers' minds to be forever tethered to these three truths. Here they are. First, that God is the creator of the world and everything in it. That's in verse 5. Just by his spoken word. Peter is clearly aiming at the mocker's argument here. They're saying, he hasn't come. It's been a long time. He still hasn't come. In fact, all you Christians have, all you Christians have is his word. All you have is his word that he's coming again. And so Peter starts by saying, you know that word that you're talking about? It's the one that created this whole universe. That word. That's the word we have. You're forgetting the power of his word. The second truth that Peter wants believers to remember that others mock. God has already judged the world of Noah's day with the flood. It's in verse 6. The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Why does this other incident, why didn't Peter talk about Sodom and Gomorrah? In other places they refer to it. Why not when God struck someone with leprosy? Why does he talk about Noah specifically and the flood? Well, I think Peter's point, they're saying, these mockers, where? It's been going on forever. How can you believe this? It's been so long. It hasn't happened yet. So Peter talks about Noah and the flood. Read the story. Nobody thought the flood that Noah was nagging about for 120 years was ever going to come. It's forever. And you'll find a word used for those people as they as they walk to Starbucks, and they look, and there's Noah. And they get their drink, and they turn home. Hey, Noah! Pretty hot day today. <laughs> Dry, too. 120 years. And the word Peter uses to describe those people is the same one. Read the text, read the account of Noah, and those people are called mockers. Do you see why? Peter talks about these people who will mock the second coming, and he says they forget about the flood. They forget. So Peter writes to these, these persecuted churches, and as he fills their minds with the hope of the second coming, he says, now pay attention. The mockers were wrong then, and the mockers are wrong now. The third thing that we're to hold on to and that the mockers forget 
the same word of God that brought this world into being with such incredible power is even now actively holding it together, reserving the ungodly for judgment. That's not me. That's verse 7. But by the same word, that creative word that created the heavens and the earth, the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You can see what Peter's doing. He's saying, we, we don't see everything God is presently doing. That just as surely as a place is being prepared for those who love Jesus, I go to prepare a place for you. This text says, a judgment is being prepared for the wicked and the ungodly. We only talk about the one going to prepare a place. The, the Bible says Jesus is preparing two places. Two eternal realities. So, not just one. God is busy doing two things right now, and you can't see either of them. And all the mockers will be silenced. So, so, so here's the important point as I close. It's quite a text. Second Peter 2 and 3. Hear the truth of God with a sincere mind. Remember the coming day of the Lord. Peter, if he were standing here physically, he would say, don't let your own desires, your own bias toward living your life on your own terms. Don't let that cloud out the reality of the coming of Jesus. He will reward everyone. Those who chase, chafe against the truth, those who just live for the moment, who justify their sin, those who return to the sins of the past like a dog returns to its vomit. Please don't think this is, you know, one of those weird fanatics that you see downtown Toronto or New York with a billboard, you know, repent or perish and spell perish wrong, something like that. That's not what this is. That's not what this is. This isn't some redneck flaming evangelist sweating. This is, this is the Apostle Peter with a pretty cool head under the anointing and inspiration of the Holy Spirit destroyed by the wrath of God, mockers. But for those who love Jesus with a sincere mind, Who, who walk instantly in his way when he speaks, who are shaped by the word rather than the drift of their culture. There is nothing that will spur you on, give you patience, courage, persistence, and endurance like the second coming of Jesus. He's coming for you. And boy, there's something in me that just goes, yeah, Finish then, finish then thy new creation. Pure and spotless let us be. Suddenly return and never, never more thy temples leave. And everyone said,